Good morning, fellowship. Good to be with you guys. Um, for those of you that I don't know, my name is Rob, and at Fellowship, if you're new, we have two teaching pastors, myself and Lloyd, and we switch off, so every other week, typically, um, while I'm here, Lloyd is at our Franklin campus and vice versa, and we're in this series on uh, called The Promise, and it's our Advent series. It's our Christmas series, and it's been a little bit unusual. Uh, I've been enjoying it because it's allowed me to dig into parts of Scripture that I haven't studied in a long, long time. And what Lloyd and I have done is we decided, what would it be like if we covered some of the lesser known individuals in the genealogy of Jesus that we find in Matthew chapter one? So that's what we have been doing. Turn in your Bibles if you brought a Bible with you to Matthew chapter one. It's interesting to think about this. The first 16 verses of the New Testament are just a bunch of names. And, you know, if you read the, new, the King James Version, this is the begats. You know, so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so. And this hard-to-pronounce name begat that hard-to-pronounce name. And uh, we've been going through this. And the way it's laid out in Matthew is there are three sets of 14 names. So 14 names from Abraham, you know, who was the father of the nation, to David, its best king, its most important king. 14 names from David to the time of the exile, which is the lowest of the lowest points in Jewish history. And then 14 names from the exile to the birth of Jesus Christ, which of course was the high point, not just of Jewish history, but of human history. And so what we've done is we've had three weeks in this Advent series, and we have taken one name from each of the three sections. Two weeks ago, we talked about Obed, who was the baby son born to Ruth and Boaz and the redeemer of Naomi's story and this baby of hope. Then last week, Lloyd taught on Rehoboam, who was a bad king, but God used his story and all of its disruption and, and all of its selfishness and, and lack of wisdom as part of the redemptive story that led to the, eventually to the birth of Jesus. And this morning we're gonna talk about Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, you may not know much about him. Honestly, I didn't know much about him either until I dug in this last week. Look at Matthew 1, verse 12. This is where we are gonna find his name. Now this is the beginning of the last section from the exile to the birth of Jesus. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. This is about 11 generations before Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're gonna learn Zerubbabel's story. Or for those of you that know a little bit about him, you're gonna dig deeper and find out more about uh, what he was all about. But what's interesting about this is how much Zerubbabel is connected to Jesus. I never realized it before, before I dug into it. There's some amazing connections between this man and Jesus Christ. And then there's some... I think incredible application for us in this year, particularly for 2020. So there's so much hope for us in Advent of 2020 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna find that in Zerubbabel's story. So let's talk about this man. We have to start with his name. I kind of chose him because I like to say the name Zerubbabel. It's fun to say, why don't you say it? In fact, say it after me, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Now, I did some research. Some people pronounce it Zerubbabel. Probably the actual way it, would, it was technically perfect pronounced would be somewhere in between Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel, but that's hard to do, so I'm just going with Zerubbabel. And I've already gotten to say it like five times in the last 60 seconds, which is great. Now, um, 
By the way, I had somebody come up to me after the first service and they spent the message counting the number of times that I said Zerubbabel. And it was 46. And I'm determined to, to beat it this time. Uh, but Zerubbabel means seed of Babylon in the sense like offspring of Babylon. Maybe a simpler way to understand it is born in Babylon. That is a strange name for a Hebrew because Babylon was the enemy. The Babylonian empire were the ones that conquered, uh, that conquered Judah, the, the kingdom of Judah, conquered Jerusalem, like burned it to the ground, leveled the temple. There's all kinds of things in the Old Testament and even prophecies in the New Testament about Babylon. It's just sort of like the, the symbol of, of evil is the city of Babylon. And here you have this individual in the line of Jesus, a Hebrew who's going to play a very important role, who turns out to be a hero in the story. And his name is Seed of Babylon. It's fascinating to me. Now, let me remind you a little bit of the history before we get to our primary text, um, which I'm not going to even tell you what that is yet because I want to do kind of a big reveal. But the Hebrew people, they were deported from Jerusalem they were, it's by Nebuchadnezzar, okay? King Nebuchadnezzar, we all know the story or heard the story, you know, and this is, you know, Daniel and all the others were, were, were taken. Now, what was going on then was the Babylonians, they weren't taking everybody from the land of Judah. They were taking the wealthy and those that had any kind of power or influence. It was all the elites of, of the, the nation that they just conquered. And the reason they would do that is you strip the, the nation of the people with the wealth, you strip the nation of the, the people that are in government and have power, military leaders, etc. There's no one left that has any sense of leadership that could you know, rebuild the economy and the country and, and possibly rebel against uh, Babylon. And so that's how they would work this. So they took all the elite and uh, the king at the time of the attack and the exile was the grandfather of Zerubbabel. Now, um, they get to Babylon and they're now forced to live in this place that they didn't want to be in. I mean, can you imagine if, you know, I don't know, one, one of the China or Russia or, you know, someone invaded us and just took us away and took us back to that. And all of a sudden we had to live there. We had to figure out our lives. And God speaks to them through the prophet Jeremiah after they arrived in Babylon. And you know what God says? He actually says, you're going to be here a while, 70 years to be exact. He says, but I want you to make yourself home here. In Jeremiah 29, he actually says, I want you to like, you know, plant gardens and I want you to give your, give your children to marriage and I want you to have a home here and I want you to flourish. And then even more, he says, I want you to pray for the city that you are in because in, when, when they are blessed, you will be blessed. He's saying, I want you to pray for your enemy and work for the good of the city where you live. And then he tells them this, and I'm, you don't have to turn there. I'll just put it on the screen. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. This place being Jerusalem. It's where Jeremiah was writing from. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. 
So here's the message while they're in Babylon. Jeremiah says, look, I want you to make the best of this. Work for the welfare of the city, but remember it's not your true home. You're eventually gonna be going back to Jerusalem in 70 years, and there you will seek me with all of your heart, and I will restore. It was during those 70 years that uh, King Jeconiah, who was the last king of Judah, had a son named Shealtiel. Shealtiel grew up and had a son named Zerubbabel, born in Babylon. So Zerubbabel was a Hebrew born in the royal line who was raised to have the as much comfort as they could probably have in this place. He was a descendant of King David, but he had never been to his, the land of his ancestors. He was the rightful king of Judah. Had there been a king at that time? Of course, there was not. But something unusual happened near the end of 70 years of exile that God knew about ahead of time, but the Hebrews could not have predicted. And that is the Persian Empire emerged. They conquered the Babylonians. And so now the Babylonians are no more and the Persians are in control. And guess what? They have a different philosophy about the nations that they conquer. And so they tell the exiles, you can go home. You go back to your homeland. You don't have to stay here anymore. And sure enough, right on time, 70 years that Jeremiah prophesied, the first group of Hebrews leaves Babylon to go back to Jerusalem, the promised land. And among the first wave of the remnant that returned to Jerusalem was Zerubbabel. Now we get to our primary text and I wanted to build up to it because I couldn't wait to tell you that at the end of 2020, the Christmas text we're going to study is Haggai, which is just perfect for this year because nothing is going the way you'd expect. So turn to Haggai, Merry Christmas. We're going to cover the book of Haggai. We're not going to read the whole thing, although it's really short. It's just two short chapters, but, but we're going to read a good, a good segment of it. It's in Haggai that we learn most about Zerubbabel, and we're going to find out how Zerubbabel points to Jesus. Now, what's pretty cool about Haggai is we know the exact date it was written. The year, the month, the day, it's all here. And it matches up with extra biblical record as well, historical accounts as well from the Persians. So we know that this happened at this specific time. Just, well, before I read the first verse, let me just put this in context for you. This, this was written about 10 to 15 years after Zerubbabel and the first wave returned to Jerusalem. The king of Persia had appointed Zerubbabel governor of the area. Now he's still under Persian rule. They were, they were not a sovereign nation by any stretch. But Zerubbabel, the rightful king, was now the governor under the authority of the Persians. And Haggai comes to them after about 10 or 15 years of them being in the promised land again, and things were not going well. And this is what Haggai says. Look at, look at verse one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month. This was about late summer, fall of, of BC 520. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, think about your life, how it's going right now. And listen to this. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Pause right there. It's just such a beautiful description. It's a terrible description. But there was a famine in the land. Like the land wasn't springing forth the produce that they expected from the promised land when they returned home. They figured God would bless them for returning back. And instead there was a famine. And what God is saying is like, you're working really hard for almost no return. Have you noticed that? He says, consider your ways. Now let's keep going. Verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, the earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Oh my! Guys, I want you to put yourselves in the position of the Hebrew people for 70 years, you know, of their grandparents, then their parents, and now them had been in this place. And then, and then God allows them through a miracle to be able to go home. They go home and they're like, surely we're at the center of God's will. Surely as soon as we get back, it's going to be like huge harvests and produce and the, the land is going to be back to everything God promised it. God, have we not done exactly what you called us to in Jeremiah's prophecy 70 years earlier? And God says, oh, you haven't. God is essentially saying your bodies have returned from exile, but your heart is far away. You haven't been seeking me with all your heart, Hebrew people. Do you know how I know that? You've not even reestablished the system of worship. Now, when we hear like rebuilding the temple, you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? You know, why is, is God just petty and selfish that he has to have a house that's better than anyone else's house? Guys, that's not what's going on here. The temple was not like, you know, a church building that we might have. The, the temple was the place where God met his people. That's how it worked back then. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word worship was almost always equivalent to making sacrifices at the altar at the temple. It wasn't like you and I think of it today that you can worship God in your home or you can worship God in the car, or you can worship God in the church. No, in the Old Testament, you worshiped at the temple. Now you could pray to God at home. You could talk to God. You could you know, call on him and things, but worship was narrowly defined. The people were not worshiping. They had not reestablished the lifeblood that was worship of the one true God. It had always been their lifeblood as a nation. So what, what, what God is essentially saying to them through the prophet Haggai is, you're trying to make life work on your own and you haven't called out to me to provide for you and therefore this famine persists. And I was thinking about 2020, all right? 
Now guys, I know this gets into some tough waters, but I actually believe God is sovereign. Like God is in control. And I was thinking about this. I was like, this is a year of famine. I mean, about as much as we've had in our lifetimes, you know, in, in all kinds of various forms. I started thinking about that. I was like, why, oh God? Because whatever you believe about God's sovereignty, at least you have to believe that he could have intervened if he had chosen to in the pandemic and all, all the other crazy things. Think about your own personal story. Some of you have lost work. You've lost jobs. Your income's less than it was. Some of you haven't been able to see family members. Some of you may have lost those who are close to you. And, and you have to wrestle with God enough to say that, that at least God could have intervened. And God is saying through the prophet Haggai, is it so important to you for your life to go well that you would use up your energy and your resources and your smarts and, and, and the sweat of your brow to try to make the ground bring forth the harvest before you'd come to me and say, my father, I'm taking my heart and entrusting it into your care. God used a famine in BC 520 to teach his people that there is a direct connection between their worship and their well-being. And that is always true throughout the Bible. There is a direct connection between our worship and our well-being. Now, I'm not going to a prosperity gospel that says, you know, as soon as you start praying, your business is going to turn around and these kinds of things. But there is, don't miss it, a principle in Scripture that fullness of life is found in seeking and worshiping the one true God. And so guys, we're worshipers. We're just not all worshipers of God. You know, um, we worship all kinds of things. We can worship our career. We can worship a relationship. We can worship a dream. We can worship a home. We can worship our savings. We can worship our kids. We can worship college football. You know, some of y'all were doing that yesterday. Alabama fans, I'm calling you out. That's, in a sense, it's worship because what you're doing is you're saying, listen, listen, my sincerest hope and joy lies in this person or this thing or this career or this relationship or this savings, this sense of security. Fullness of life, men and women, is found in seeking and worshiping the one true God who is the only life source who can actually meet your needs. And so the message coming through the prophet Haggai to the people of God is two parts. There is a diagnosis and there is a prescription. Diagnosis is this. Your heart hasn't returned to me. You're not experiencing fullness in the land because you're not seeking fullness from me. In other words, the diagnosis is you're trying to have the promise without seeking my presence. And, you know, guys, I was thinking about Williamson County. And it's, you know, few of us were born here. I moved here from other places. You know, some of you moved here from California. You moved here from Florida. You moved here from Michigan. You moved here from all other places. And I don't know all the circumstances of why you moved here. But I know it had something to do with, I think life is better in Tennessee. It's closer to my grandkids. Or the cost of living is better. Or I like the culture. I like the area. It's pretty. Or it's a different political environment. Or, you know, whatever it is. I, I can start my business here and flourish, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But how many times do we try to have the promise without seeking God's presence? 
So for some of us this year, God's divinely allowed a famine. And then he's given us these ancient words to speak to us five days before Christmas 2020. The diagnosis, you're trying to have the promise without seeking my presence, what's the prescription? Rebuild the temple. In other words, prioritize your relationship with God. Live out what Jeremiah had called them to 70 years earlier. Seek me with all your heart, God says through Jeremiah. Another way to think about it, for, for these Hebrews, it was like the rebuilding of the temple was going to serve to reorient their heart. That was the reason they were to rebuild. What, what really needed to shift their heart? They rebuilt the temple in order to reorient their heart. And, and I want you to see how they responded because this is one of the fairly rare times in scripture where the people obeyed God wholeheartedly. Like they heard the words and went all in. Look at verses 12 to 15 of Haggai chapter one. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Guys, are there any more beautiful words than that? And that, by the way, is the message of Christmas. Verse 14, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And we have the exact day and month and year that the people of God turned their hearts toward him and lived that out by rebuilding the place of worship. And that day began serious construction work that lasted a significant period of years and resulted in what became known as the second temple. First temple built by Solomon, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Second temple built by Zerubbabel and others. About 500 years later, the second temple was expanded and refurbished by Herod the Great that happened just before the birth of Jesus. And so this temple, this second temple, became the place where God himself came in the person of Jesus Christ. This was the place where Jesus did much of his teaching. He did a number of miracles. This is the place where Jesus threw out the money changers and Jesus invited everyone who would listen to come to him to find God. Now go back 500 or so years, 520 BC, the building of the temple and at the very center of this very significant moment of Jewish history was Zerubbabel. The man born in Babylon who obeyed God's call to leave Babylon 
and seek him in Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, he heard the word of God spoken through the prophet and he took it to heart. And he led the people to rebuild the temple, their place of worship. That's about all we know of Zerubbabel. That's enough. Virtually everything we read in the Old Testament about Zerubbabel is is connected to the rebuilding of the temple. The most important thing of all to know about Zerubbabel is not even his obedience and, and not even the way he served a significant purpose at that moment of history. The most important thing to know about Zerubbabel is his life foreshadowed Jesus Christ. Eleven generations after Zerubbabel, another ruler was born. The one who fully represented God and his kingdom, the one who did the work the father told him to do. Israel's true leader, true king, true ruler. One who was born not in Babylon, but in Bethlehem. But like Zerubbabel, he gave his life to build a temple. I want you to think about some words that Jesus said not long before he died. Um, We find them recorded in the book of John. We'll put them on the screen. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Leave that up there for a minute. What is a temple really? You know, it's the house of God. It's kind of a, an, an intersecting point between heaven and earth, between God's space and human space. It's the dwelling place of God is the simplest way to understand that. What was Jesus? Who was Jesus? The dwelling place of God, his body, the incarnation, where God himself came to earth. Oh my goodness, you see the ultimate temple is the body of Jesus Christ. And now... According to the New Testament, we're the body. Like we're the body of Jesus. We're told that a dozen times in the New Testament. And then in one, one particular time in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, Paul says, listen, you are a temple. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is God. God himself lives in you if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're a temple. You see how all this is connected? Now, I want to connect Jesus and Zerubbabel a little bit more. You can go ahead and remove those verses if you you can. And I just want to read some things to you, some thoughts that I've had about Zerubbabel and Jesus. Just, Just listen to this. Zerubbabel left a place of relative comfort, Babylon, to come to Jerusalem. Jesus left a place of ultimate comfort, heaven, to come to earth. 
Zerubbabel rebuilt a temple destroyed by the strength of an enemy army. Jesus rebuilt a temple destroyed by the sinfulness of the human heart. Zerubbabel built a place where people could come to God. Jesus was the place where God came to us. Zerubbabel restored a broken temple. Jesus restored a broken creation. Zerubbabel began the work of the temple, was faithful until it was completed. Jesus has begun a work in you and will be faithful until it is completed. Like, and if we were Baptists, that is the time that you would say amen. Thank you. Okay. So here's the lesson. We'll put this on the screen. The the lesson of all of this this morning is this. Like Zerubbabel, Jesus came to rebuild what was broken and that has everything to do with you. For us in 2020, Zerubbabel is a marker. He, He is a marker that points us. He's a sign that points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus will keep his promise to restore what is broken. He will rebuild what is broken. And that starts with you. That starts with me. That starts with us. When we think about Jesus coming to bring peace on earth, and you know, by the way, you know, of course, peace means wholeness. It means completion. It, it, means, it means like the puzzle being put back together. It doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of completion, the presence of wholeness. When we sing about Jesus coming to bring peace on earth, I don't know about you, but I'm usually thinking of all the stuff out there. You know, it's like, oh, peace on earth, holy cow. Yeah, you know, political conflict, military conflict, disease. You know, God, come, Jesus, come back, bring peace on earth. How often do we think of the brokenness right here? Jesus, when he was walking the earth, he didn't really like to hang out with people that didn't know they were messed up. He really preferred the company of people who were aware of their own need. Who didn't try to put on a bunch of false pretenses and just be like, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. And you know, this caught the attention of a lot of people. In fact, the the religious leaders saw this and um, they came to Jesus one time and and they're like, why do you hang out? with the, the sinners, you know, the, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the drunk people. And you know what Jesus said? He said, listen, it's because I've come for them. He said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick that need a doctor. I've not come to call the so-called righteous to repentance. They wouldn't hear me anyway. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And I was thinking about that this week. And, and I want to ask a question of you. It's like when you think of why Jesus came and who Jesus came for, do you think of you? If you do, then you are right. If you, when you look inside yourself, you know, the 
the, 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 the darkness commingled with the light, you know, that is in your, in your inner thoughts and your inner desires. If you can see inside of yourself the rubble of a broken down temple wrecked by selfishness and, and anger and hardened by stubbornness and pride, maybe this year given over to despair or indifference, if you can see those broken pieces inside of you, then Jesus has come for you. Jesus has come to restore what is broken. He has come to rebuild a temple. And the temple he has come to rebuild is you and me. So in this Advent, at the close of one of the most unique years we will ever have, this Advent is an opportunity for you to let Jesus find you. He has come for you. It is an opportunity for you to allow Jesus to take whatever broken pieces you can see, whatever brokenness you will own, and begin to bring it to life. Begin to rebuild and restore. Be begin to take the rubble inside your heart and rebuild it into a temple, a dwelling place of God, a place of worship, a place where others might come and, and see God reflected through you. I want to pray for us in this. And I want to pray specifically for you and for me at Christmas and what these next five days could hold for us and beyond into 2021. And I hope you will receive this prayer and even join in me in this prayer. And then when this prayer is done, we're going to sing a last song that will proclaim what our expectations are for the future. Father, we dare to come to you with the mess that is inside of us. Um, we cannot clean ourselves up before we enter your presence, nor do you ask us to. So Father, I bring to you right now this morning my, my hard heart, my, my struggle, uh, my cynicism and my frustration that this year has held, the dashed hopes. I pray for those in the room right now who are able to bring their own broken pieces before you right now, things in their lives that are not going well. The famine that they are experiencing outside of them and even inside of them, maybe it's a famine of spirit that they feel so far from you. And maybe it's related to their external circumstances or those they care about or their livelihoods. Maybe it's, it's a churning inside of them that just is restless and, and a little angry, irritated with people. Father, we dare to believe that you have come and that you've come to bring completion and wholeness, restoration. And Father, we bring to you our sin. We want to take it seriously enough to own it. Our pride and our selfishness, our quick tempers, 
the way that we withhold things from you and others, our addictions, our callousness, indifference to other people and to you. We dare to bring those pieces to you knowing that you're the only place we can come with our sin. Would you please forgive us? Would you please lay a foundation of hope? Would you please send the rain? Would you restore your people to be temples of the Holy Spirit? And through us, would you proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ in this land? We dare to ask you that because we believe you are who you say you are, Jesus Christ. And so we sing this song of worship and hope and expectation for your return. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing.